We come this evening to John chapter 7 in our study of the gospel according to John chapter 7. whole chapter hangs together. We'll look at the first half this evening. John 7 verses 1 through 31. John 7, at verse 1, the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. By the way, John often is using the word Jews here to refer to the Jewish leaders. Verse 2, now the, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but him, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. 
Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who has sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? We in God's word there. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for the word that you have given and the word that you've inscripturated, the word that you've preserved throughout the ages that we may read it here tonight and may hear it proclaimed to us. We ask for the presence of your spirit, that truly we could know you through Jesus Christ, we could be nourished by you, and we could be led in the way of faith. Visit us then, O Lord, expel darkness from our heart, and give us the light of the Lord Jesus. In his wonderful name we pray, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, we're approaching holiday season, and you know there are families that have certain traditions of meeting together with extended family. And I've noticed over the years that occasionally some of these families who have big family gatherings, that once in a while there's, there's a little bit of tension because so-and-so is going to be there this year. Uncle Devin, and everybody knows what he's like. What's going to happen? Or, or maybe, maybe some rich relative, somebody really prestigious, or whatever it might be, but the usual routine of gathering is is somehow now focused upon someone's arrival. Well, in John 7, the Jews are about their normal routines of going up to Jerusalem. Remember, three times a year, all the males in Israel had to appear in Jerusalem. They often apparently took their families. But there were three major feasts. First of all, the the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, it's also called. And then thirdly, there was the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's what it is, this week-long feast. But this particular occasion here is overwhelmed by the reality that Jesus of Nazareth may appear. So people are looking for him. Everybody knows that the situation has grown rather tense between Christ and the religious leaders, here in John 7, we're entering into a new phase here. I think it's about six months away from Christ's crucifixion. And so there's a lot of intensity. There's a lot of opinions about Jesus, from his brother's opinions to the crowd's various opinions to religious leaders' opinions. Everyone has opinions or is forming opinions, asking, who is this, who is this Jesus? Is he a deceiver? Does he speak the truth? But everyone seems to be holding their breath in in anticipation of his arrival at the feast. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is memorable. Even boys and girls often know about this one because tabernacles refers to the booths that, that God's people were to build. They were to build these shelters, and they were to live in them as a remembrance of the days Israel spent in the wilderness living in tents. And so the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated The fact that God led them out of Egypt and that he cared for them and provided for them in the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. It was also, again, a a harvest festival, rejoicing. But but it was a great occasion. Multitudes of sacrifices. The joy of the nation was on display, remembering how God provided for us in the wilderness. 
And yet, ironically, tragically, as the true provision of God, to which all these feasts point, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, comes. He's not received, but rejected by the religious leaders. Come to this new section. There's this transition, as we see in verses 1 and 2, from Christ being up north in Galilee, because the Jews were trying to kill him, that now he comes down south into Judea, into Jerusalem for the feast. And he appears, as we see tonight, as the teacher. He stands in the midst of the temple, we read in verse 14, and he taught. Again in verse 28, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple. He appears as the great teacher who needs to instruct an ignorant people in the truth that he brings from heaven. And as we see Christ doing that, we see the hostility he bears as the teacher sent from heaven. Notice, first of all, the timing that Christ honors, and secondly, the rebellion that Christ exposes, and then finally, the appeal that Jesus makes. Well, every good teacher knows what time it is. Keep their eye on the clock. Preachers sometimes don't do so well, but teachers, they do pretty good. Because, you know, there's a class to follow, or there's a schedule to keep, or there's a calendar, and all these things have to be fit in, and so there's lesson plans, and they know, they know what time it is. And Jesus knows what time it is. He knew when to stay in Galilee. He knew when to go to Jerusalem. He, he knows what's going on. He marches according to God's plan and God's agenda here. Now, God had been training his people to live by a calendar, of course. They had, they had been taught are being taught redemption by living according to a certain calendar of those feasts that I mentioned and certain festivals and so forth. We sometimes kind of follow a church calendar, don't we? We'll plan to mark Advent, right, and the birth of Jesus Christmas service, and, and we, we mark Good Friday and so forth and all that, but that's not absolutely mandatory. In fact, there's some Reformed churches that refuse to have special services on those days because they remember that prior to the Reformation, people were enslaved to all these extra holy days, so-called. And they don't want to bind people's consciences and they don't want to lose the calling to live according to the word of God alone. So it's helpful for us to remember too, if you're going to skip a worship service, it's better skip a Christmas worship service than a Sunday service. But, I bring that up because the Lord was instructing his people through these feasts, and they were called to come to them. Now, the brothers of Jesus, Jesus was not an only child. He had brothers and sisters, too. And his brothers with him in Galilee are saying, look it, look it, you need to go into Jerusalem and show yourself. Presumably, they want him to do miracles. His brothers here are perhaps a bit perturbed. Remember what had happened? We, we read back in John 4, verse 45, that when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they had also gone to the feast. So back in chapter 4, all the people from north and Galilee surround Jesus. They're excited because he's done these miracles in Jerusalem. But then you remember what happened? Jesus proclaimed that he is the bread of life. You have to eat him and drink him or you're going to die. And they said, ah, and they left him and they rejected him. And now these brothers are presumably upset. They, they love Christ's popularity. They, they, they were excited about him. They are his campaign managers, they think. And they're advising him now, go to Jerusalem, do miracles, show yourself. 
And then people in Jerusalem, the Galileans, will embrace you again. But verse 5 tells us they didn't believe. Oh, they believed he could work miracles, but they didn't believe. They have worldly regrets about who Jesus is and what he's acting like. Remember the people in chapter 6 at first, when Christ feeds them with the bread, when he works that miracle of feeding the 5,000, they want to make him king. But by the end of the episode, they desert him. He's not the king they want him to be. They have their worldly expectations, don't they? They want a political savior. They want to be liberated from the Romans. They want, they want a king who gives them a good economy, who gives them bread. And now his brothers here are unbelieving. And they're disappointed with him. They don't understand Christ's mission. He doesn't come to start a movement or, or gain political prowess. Jesus Christ comes to be a savior, the savior, to fulfill a mission given him by the Father. And so Jesus says to them in verse 6, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Christ said something similar to his mother, remember, at the, the wedding in Canaan when she wanted him to, to do something about the lack of wine. My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going. Now, Jesus has his eye on heaven's clock. He realizes that the Father's given him a mission. The Father has a plan, a purpose, a time, a schedule, and Christ is marching according to that schedule. He knows the reason for which he's been sent. And he especially knows the time at which he's supposed to die on the cross. He can't hurry that cross. He can't delay that cross. He must move towards the cross according to the Father's schedule. Christ withdraws at time so that he won't provoke the cross. And then Christ comes at the end to provoke the cross to be crucified. God has appointed the day of Christ's birth. God has appointed the day of Christ's death. And Jesus does not need campaign managers or his brothers to schedule his arrival. It should give us comfort, brothers and sisters, as God's people, to, to see our Savior who refuses to walk according to the will of men, but will only do what the Father has sent him to do at the time the Father sent him to do it. He's never pushed into doing something. He's never compelled by the opinions of men. We may get a little frustrated at times. He doesn't act. Why doesn't Jesus act? Why doesn't he do something about this? But Christ knows exactly the when, the time of everything. And so God has a perfect plan. For Christ's work in our lives tonight, too. And for Christ's work in this world. And as one writer puts it, with these words, quite wisely, writing, If the deepest motivation lying at the heart of Christ's ministry is found not in men, or even in himself, but in his profound sense of the eternal purpose of God the Father, then it's not for us to fit Jesus neatly into our lives and agendas on our own terms, but rather the reverse. Christ has come so that we might be caught up and fitted into God's life and purpose. 
How easily we want to conform Christ to our schedules, to our purposes, to our desires. And Christ has come to do the opposite thing, to bring us into God's plan and purpose. And you know, when we begin to live that way and to recognize that, that, that God doesn't exist for me, I exist for God, then we actually end up with great peace, don't we? Because we learn that, that everything comes to us not by chance, but by the hand of our Father in heaven. And so our lives are utterly controlled by God. And what was true of Jesus actually now becomes true of us, verse 30. Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Is that remarkable? At the end of this episode, they want to kill him and they can't get a hold of him. And this is going to happen repeatedly in the chapters that follow. They want to grab him. They want to stone him. They want to get him. And they can't do it until the hour appointed by the Father. Christ says, this is now your hour. This is the hour of darkness. Now, now I will die. But you see what's true of Christ in a different way is true of all those who are united to Jesus Christ. That as we belong to the Lord and his plan and purpose guards our entire lives and we will not die one second before our appointed hour. And no one can lay a hand on us apart from God's will for us in Christ Jesus. How comforting it is. How comforting it is to know that our lives operate by heaven's clock. And we need not be upset then by the timing our Savior keeps, but we may rest certain in this that, that Christ is never late. He's never late. We don't have to doubt. We can rejoice instead in, in our Savior who never acts indecisively, who's never pushed around by the whims of men, but he lives by the schedule of heaven. Christ comes to Jerusalem, but not in the way the brothers wanted. He will go to Jerusalem, not at the beginning of the feast. He will go to Jerusalem, not openly as his brothers do, but he will arrive there and make himself known in the middle of the feast. Too late for the religious leaders to grab him. Too late for them to work out their plans that were waiting for him. Too late for them to bring him to the cross. Christ is in charge. But as he comes to Jerusalem, then notice secondly this evening, the rebellion that Christ, this true teacher, uncovers. Good teachers uncover things. Good teachers discover things to their students. And, and Christ is the kind of Savior who uncovers sin. Notice that secondly. Jesus says to his brothers that, that the world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. The brothers of Jesus don't comprehend the opposition that Jesus faces, right? They they think, look, there's a misunderstanding. You need to get yourself to Jerusalem, do some more miracles. Then the Galileans will embrace you again. And they think it's just about political maneuvering, right? Like it seems to be at times in our political system. But they don't recognize that there's actually a kingdom conflict here. And the reason there's opposition to Jesus and turning away from Jesus is because he's showing people their sin. Why do they hate him? They hate him because he doesn't appear as the kind of king that they want. They want a king who affirms them as a righteous people, pats them on the back, and then gives them a little help on the political scene. Well, Christ hasn't come to be that kind of a king or savior. 
They're all ready to carry him on their shoulders if he will just be a king who applauds them for all their righteousness, all their law-keeping, good people. That's not what he comes to do, is it? He comes to expose our failures and our need for a bloody, dying Savior. We don't always like that either, do we? Remember, this harkens back to John chapter 3, where we read in verses 19 and 20, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Christ comes as the bright, shining light of heaven, right? He, he unveils the truth of God, and he interprets for us the law of God. And people whose hearts are evil, who love darkness, they say, smash the light. Smash that light. Some of you experience that in the workplace, right, or at school, or with family. Maybe you'll do a face conflict at family gatherings. Those who don't want their sin exposed. You're hated because your very presence is is an irritant, you and your holy life. You see, that's the nature of sin. But Christ, when he comes as the pure light from heaven, brings a crisis into this world, doesn't he? He brings a crisis. And you either have to come into the light and confess your sin, or you have to wage war against the light. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as a teacher. We read in verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews are immediately annoyed. Who is this to teach? He hasn't gone to our seminary. He doesn't have a doctoral degree from our school. Who is he to teach? Christ says, verse 16, my doctrine, that word means teaching, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. It's remarkable, isn't it, that God chose to bring forth the premier teacher from the carpenter's wood shop instead of from the rabbinic school of Jerusalem. So that God might make clear to all that the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't come from men and rabbi so-and-so, but it comes from heaven. But then Jesus says, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Come back to that in a moment. But as Jesus exposes their sin here, notice what he goes on to say in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? And then as an example of that, Jesus says to them in verse 21, I did one work and you'll all marvel. The one work he's talking about is, is what we found back in chapter 5, remember? Jesus healing that man at the pool of 
Bethesda. Remember that? There's a crippled man. There's a lay man, and Christ comes to him. He chews out this one man who's been crippled for, for a multitude of years, and he tells him, take up your bed and walk. And the man takes up his bed and begins to walk, and the, the Sabbath police catch him and say, what are you doing? And he says, well, the, the man who healed me told me to take up my mat and walk. And then we read John 5, verse 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So now, a couple chapters later in John 7 here, Jesus is explaining. You want an example of the fact that you don't keep the law of Moses? Well, how about this? Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? You see, you've judged that it's okay to circumcise a baby boy on the Sabbath because the eighth day of his life falls on the Sabbath, so you keep the circumcision law and you circumcise on the Sabbath and you see no contradiction in doing that. But what is the Sabbath but the day of rest? Pointing to the full rest God would give you. What is circumcision? But a sign of cleansing. Applied to one particular part of the body. But I come and I heal the whole body. I heal the whole man. I give him rest. And you're going to kill me for that? What do you know about covenant mercy? In reality, the Jews have a man-made religion. They're not obeying Moses. They may engage in supposed Sabbath-keeping. They may engage in supposed circumcision. But they know, they know nothing about what these things mean. Their hearts aren't on the true purpose of Sabbath. Their hearts are not set on the true purpose of circumcision and, and the covenant grace it points to. They live with this man-made religion of rules. Remember Jesus' word to that paralyzed man in chapter 5. He asked the question when he met him, do you want to be made well? As we noted before, that's really the question to the religious leaders. Do you want to be made well? Are you quite satisfied with all your supposed law-keeping? Jesus Christ has come to expose sin, to expose self-righteousness. And that's a great mercy. Imagine if God had given us the Savior we wanted who came and applauded us for being good people and came and patted us all on the back. You know, that's what false teachers do today, right? There's churches you can go to to find that kind of thing. But that leads people to hell, doesn't it? Christ comes to expose sin. He brings the light of God's holiness into our lives. And he says, you do all these things, and you think you're doing so well. You're keeping all these laws, but you've gutted the whole system. Your righteousness is just outward. You don't really care about love for God. It's all about pleasing yourself. It's a great mercy that God gives to us such a teacher who doesn't leave us in self-complacency. It's a great mercy that Christ still demands that the law of God be preached to us. The catechism asked at one point in the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, if we can't, if we can't keep the law perfectly, why, why do we want it preached to us so strictly? 
And the answer is, is so that we'll know we need a Savior. So that we'll know we need the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so we need to be continually challenged, don't we, towards self-examination and comparing ourselves to the true law of God, not to a man-made religion. And when we live lives that are void of confession of sin or pleadings to God for mercy, then it reveals a kind of self-righteousness that's present in us. But Christ doesn't leave us there. Notice finally tonight the appeal, the appeal that Christ makes. We see it in two places. Notice, first of all, that Christ is emphasizing this, those two places I'll bring you to in a moment, but, but beneath them is this reality that Christ is emphasizing that he's come from God. He's been sent, right? He says in verse 16 that my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. His who sent me. And he says again in verses 28 and 29 that I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. So Christ is is resting everything as he comes as a teacher. He's resting everything on this reality that that his is a doctrine, a teaching that, that God, the almighty, true, living God of heaven and earth has given to him. He's been commissioned by the Father. He is one with the Father. And on that basis now, he comes not just exposing sin, but he makes an appeal. First of all, in verse 24, when he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jews are judging so superficially. You healed a man on the Sabbath, that must be a work, therefore you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, therefore you must have violated the Sabbath. Christ says, what kind of hypocrisy are you playing with here? Judging by appearance? Judge by righteousness. What does the law mean? Bumped into people like this before, right? Maybe at work, they're utterly petty. You said a Christian should do this, but look at what you did. Well, sometimes they're right, right? We sometimes live as hypocrites, but sometimes you look at them and see... You don't even want to understand, do you? Judge with righteousness. Jesus says in verse 17, If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. That's what it comes down to, right? It's only those who will to do God's will that can recognize the truth of Christ's teaching. We could could fill this place up tonight with people that don't want to do God's will. And none of them will be able to understand the truth of Christ. It's only when the heart is, is softened towards the Lord. Only when the heart says, God, I want to follow you. I want to obey you. I want to glorify you. It's only then that you can see that the teaching of Christ is beautiful. It's lovely. It's perfect. It's glorious. But as long as the heart opposes God, there's no capacity to recognize that this is divine teaching. We as the church have to recognize that, don't we? 
Christ knew what time it was, and therefore he came to Jerusalem not to do miracles, but to teach. He comes to Jerusalem not to perform miracles at this point in his ministry, but to instruct. And there is a bit of a parallel with where we're at as the church today too, right? The the age of the apostles is over. We're not in the miracle business. We've got this book, and we are to preach this book. Right? But we should recognize as we do that, that the reason many cannot understand the truth of this is not because it's not presented clearly enough, or it's so intellectually beyond them, but it's because their hearts are hard. Now, we too have political campaign managers, right? I've had people tell me, you know, if you wanted the church to grow, you got to change the music. Well, if you want the church to grow, you got to do this or that. And we can say to them, look, at, we're not just in the business of getting people in the building. We're in the business of trying to glorify God and fulfill the assignment he gave us. And if some come and they just can't get it, they can't get this teaching, they don't see it as truth, we don't need them to to massage the message and change the message. We need to pray for their hearts that they would bow to God, and when they bow to God, they'll see the glory of it. Christ, in his mercy here, is saying, judge righteously. Put off your, 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 your... your self-sufficiency, your proud hearts, and judged by the truth of God's word. And only then will you understand who I am. That's the one appeal. But then there's an implied appeal in verses 28 and 29. When Jesus cries out as he teaches in the temple, says, you both know me and you know where, I, where I'm from. Many of them thought, The Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, of course, book of Micah. But others apparently thought that the Messiah would come from unknown origin. But we know he's from Nazareth, from Joseph and Mary. And Jesus says, okay, you know know me, you know where I come from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. You're not realizing the one who sent me, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him. And he sent me. And so again now Christ is saying, you don't know God. Isn't that striking? He's talking to the Jewish people, the covenant people of God. He's talking to the teachers of the law. And he's saying, the one who sent me is one you don't know. You don't know God. And is Christ then slamming the door shut and saying, it's hopeless for you. You don't know God. You can't understand where I come from. No, there's an implied urgency, an appeal here. Turn to him. Believe on him. Humble yourself before him so that you can know where I'm from. You have to open your heart to believe that God is visiting you now in mercy and grace in me, Jesus said. You have to open your proud heart. You have to cast off your arrogance to believe that that now in my person, the living God is visiting you with grace. And Christ stands here among the people to make that grace of God known. And this will divide them, won't it? Some try to lay hands on him to kill him. 
And verse 31, others believe in him. This is the nature of the gospel. As it came from the lips of Jesus as he walked upon earth, and as the gospels proclaimed today throughout all of the world, that those who humble their hearts before God will see the glory of God, the mercies of God in Jesus Christ, And those who rest in their supposed goodness, whose hearts are hard, will despise the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The teacher of God has come. It's not that we need a better instructor. It's not that things are so unclear, I just can't get it. But it all comes down to this. Will I yield? Will I confess my sin and yield to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If things are unclear in our lives tonight, we say it's all just so, so confusing. You know, my elders say I should do this, but, you know, I got all this going on. It's all so confusing. Sometimes we just have to ask ourselves and say, what's really my heart about? What am I really about? Have I yielded to the Lord? Because as I yield to him, I gain a world of clarity. May Jesus give us those humble hearts by his spirit to receive him as the teacher sent from heaven, the son of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for Christ who stood in the temple and taught and for Christ who stands among his lampstands on this Lord's day and teach us. But Father, we fear the arrogance of our own hearts, and we plead with you to overcome our conceit and to deliver us from our haughty spirits and to give us the humility that will bow before your Lord and your Christ. We thank you for such a wonderful Savior and pray that we would be willing every day to come into the light, to confess our sin and our great need of the one who went to the cross for us, In Jesus' name we pray, amen.